tonight. This is not a misprint. If you were here last week, which was not here, we were at a different place because of the snow, but uh, we looked at this passage last week and we're going to look at it again uh, because it's just so, there's just so much going on here. I mean, it's been said that scripture is kind of like the ocean. It's, it's accessible enough where toddlers can kind of play in its edges, and yet it's deep enough where nobody can plumb its depths. And that's true of the Bible as a whole and of this passage that we're going to look at tonight. So if you, if you have this little sheet, follow along with me. We're looking at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through the end. <clears throat> now one of the Pharisees... And just pause there in case you don't know what Pharisees are. Uh, Pharisees were sort of the religious leaders of, uh, of this time. So picture professional religious person. <laughs> now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, that means she was a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, and therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for look, she loved much." But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, I'd like for you to pray with me as as we uh, consider these things before we jump in. Okay, so let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us... um, to see more clearly, and I pray that you would enable us uh, to be more honest as we approach this text and think about ourselves in light of it. And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by uh, doing something a little bit different. It's basically just telling you a little bit about my story. I uh, became a Christian in high school. It wasn't like a dramatic conversion. I wasn't like a drug addict or anything, but I, um, I was more of like the the angry type who just locked himself in his room and uh, would just write poetry about like how depressed and angry I was. And um, apparently that's funny. And um, I, uh, <laughs> the first time I heard the gospel, uh, it was the summer before my junior year in high school, and I heard the gospel, and the Lord opened up my eyes and opened up my heart, and I believed it, and Jesus saved me. 
and my life uh, was, was radically turned upside down because uh, from that point on, I was very enthusiastic. I was one of those people that you would say was on fire. Still don't really know what that means, but um, I, I was uh, super involved in everything, and I threw myself into the church, into my youth group, and into FCA, and we had Young Life and various different Bible studies. So literally, I, every single day of the week, I had something that I went to that was either a Bible study or a prayer meeting or a worship gathering of, of some sort. Uh, I tried to uh, have a quiet time every single morning, and I had a, um, a heart uh, to see the lost uh, converted as well. So fast forward three years later to my sophomore year in college. And here's how I would describe myself then. Burnt out. Uh, I was dominated by guilt. I was full of fear. And Christianity had really become a, a drudgery and a routine. And, and if I was honest, it had also become competitive uh, with my friends. And so um, uh, I had this unshakable, nagging feeling that God was just constantly disappointed in me. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I would go to these conferences or these camps, and I would kind of get amped up and get jazzed up for a little bit. But then after a few weeks or a few days, the, the enthusiasm would sort of fade. And then I would feel guilty about not having the spiritual capacity to, to remain enthusiastic for God like my friends did. And so I had just sort of gotten to the point where I was convinced intellectually that Christianity was true. I, I had done my homework. I believed that it was true philosophically and intellectually and all that. But experientially, it, it just felt like hell. I felt trapped and I felt stuck. Uh, but I just thought that this was what walking the, the narrow road looked like. I mean, to follow Jesus, you were supposed to be in large part miserable. Now, some of you are exactly right there tonight. Others of you are not. The reason why I tell you that story is to pose a question, because there's a question that's running behind that whole story there, is how do you connect with God? How do you connect and have a living, ongoing, vibrant, real connection to God and to Jesus without it degenerating into that? Because my answer to that question is the same answer that some of y'all are giving to that, answer, or to that question, which is this. The way that you connect with God is by being good, by being religiously busy, and by, by being religiously active. And Jesus is going to look at that solution to that question and say, that's not the right way. He's actually going to explode that way of thinking in this passage tonight. Because what he does is he looks at religion, religiosity, sort of religious busyness, being good, however you want to phrase it. And he says, if you think that is the way to connect in with me, you're mistaken. It is a dead end. So what I want to do tonight is just look at this passage with you and show you that Jesus exposes and explodes that way of thinking by showing us that with religion, there are three fundamental problems to it. And then he gives us the solution. So that's what I want to do tonight. Just look at each of the three problems that Jesus raises with religion and then show you how he provides the way forward, the solution. Okay? So here's the first problem with, with religion that Jesus uh, raises. Religion obscures your self-assessment. That's the first thing. Religion obscures your self-assessment. Sorry. Sickness. Um, 
<laughs> easier. Okay, we saw last week, if you were here last week, there's two main characters in the story. There's a woman who is a prostitute, and there's this religious guy. The woman has an accurate self-assessment. She knows that she is messed up. I mean, she's a prostitute. She's very in touch with how messy her life is. And so as a result, she's very open to Jesus. This guy is not because he has been deluded into thinking by his religious activity that he's, he's an all-around good person. And, and here's how this works. Here, here's what Pharisees did. It's kind of a three-step process. The first thing that they did, Pharisees and, and religious types, which is what, kind of what this person represents, is that they would basically focus on doable externals. They boiled the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible down to doable, measurable you know, external things that you could do, behavioral uh, decisions. This is why, by the way, Simon is so shocked in verse 39, Simon is the Pharisee's name, by the way, for letting Jesus touch this woman or for letting this woman touch Jesus. He's shocked because she's so clearly not following the ritual purity laws. She's so clearly a rule breaker. It's very obvious to him because in his mind, sin and righteousness are very obvious, doable, behavioral things. Okay? So that was the first thing that, that they did. They boiled everything down to doable externals. And here's the second thing. They would then downplay the more immeasurable internal things that the Bible actually puts more emphasis on. Things like uh, pride and greed and worship and entitlement and selflessness and selfishness and anger. They sort of downplayed those things. So if you put those first two things together and do them quite well, this is why you can have somebody who goes to church every single week, reads their Bible every single day, gives away their money, is a faithful, church-going person, and is still a totally self-righteous jerk. You know these types of people, right? This is because that's what they're doing. Is they, They're doing this thing. They're focusing on behavior instead of being. And that's exactly what this, is, what this guy is doing. So you focus on the external, doable shortlist of the Bible, downplay the heart issues, and then here's the third thing that they did, is they would just compare themselves to people that were totally blowing it. Like the, the most obvious, like, total screw-ups. And so they would look at those people, distance and separate themselves from people like that, and say... I, I don't want to have anything to do with people like that. People who break those types of rules. People who listen to that type of music. I don't watch those types of movies. You know what I'm saying? So you put these three things together, and this radically affects how you view yourself. And so this is probably how Simon the Pharisee would probably have thought of himself. Something like this. Hey, I'm not perfect, okay, but I'm... I'm all right. I mean, compared to this woman, I mean, at least I'm not whoring myself out for money. I mean, compared to her, I'm coming out ahead, right? I'm okay. And here's the problem with that way of thinking. It's completely delusional. It's completely delusional. He is severely, desperately sinful and needy, just like she is. But his religion is obscuring his self-assessment. When Catherine, my wife, and I bought a house in Charlotte a number of years ago, uh, we bought a house in a rougher, more urban neighborhood that had really kind of gone to pot because it was, uh, there was a lot of crime in, uh, crime in there and drugs and things like that. And so we, uh, we saw this house that had just recently been um, flipped. You know, somebody had come in and kind of rehabbed the whole thing. And so it was this beautiful old 1920s historic house, beautiful front porch, and uh, had all the you know, new paint, 
brand new countertops, awesome appliances, brand new hardwood floors. And so we invested and we bought it and it was awesome and we loved it until the kitchen began sinking into the ground. I mean, the, the, liter- the kitchen was literally falling into the earth. You could see it cracking and like slipping away from the house and you could feel it when you walked in that room. It w- you know, we had to hire these uh, high-tech, fancy people to get under there and figure out what was going on. I'm obviously educated in that. And uh, I, mean, they fa- I mean, they basically found out that while these people had dumped in all of this money and energy into rehabbing the, the outside and the exterior of the house, the foundation had been completely ignored. The house was basically sitting on uh, rotted out wood and rickety old uh, brick columns, which was just an enormous headache and it was expensive to fix this whole thing, which we you know, eventually did. But that is exactly, that is a picture of what religion does. You focus on the exterior. You keep up the appearance, and so you can look very happy and obedient and put together. And all the while, you ignore the inside, the things that nobody can see, the things that really matter. And on the inside, it's rotted out and falling apart. But no one would ever know because you keep up the appearance. Now, I'm sure you've either been a part of a church community or a religious community like that, or at least you've, you've heard of one or you've experienced one in some capacity where basically uh, works like this, where the whole Christian game is basically just one big sophisticated game of hide your sin. And so you amplify the good parts about you, and you downplay and kind of ignore and stuff behind all the bad things about you, and as a result, nobody is being honest, nobody's talking about their struggles, everybody just puts on their plastic smiles and pretends like everything's okay and we're all put together, and, and you know how alienating and frustrating that feels to be a part of that, where everybody is happy, everybody's kind of put together and you don't know what to do about it, and so as a result, you, you buy into the mojo and then you start feeling good about yourself because you compare yourself to the druggie or the drunk or the slut or the liberal or whatever word you want to use to compare yourself to somebody to feel better about yourself to that person. You know what I mean? Or you just catch yourself saying things like, well, at least I would never do that. And that is why some of you hate Christianity. And I don't blame you, honestly. But here's the thing that I want you to see. It's not just the churches. It's not just the religious communities that we've come from or we've experienced. It is us as well. It is me. It is you. We do this, don't we? We all do this. We have our lists in our head where we boil down and say, this is what is good. This is what is bad. And so for some of us, we boil down the whole Bible, everything that God says about our lives into this, where sin is uh, having sex, drinking, cussing, and smoking or doing drugs. That's the bad list. And the good list, the virtue, the righteousness list, is doable external things like going to church, going to campus ministry, reading your Bible, volunteering, getting good grades. You boil down everything to that. That's what you've done. And then you say, okay, I feel good about myself for doing that, and I can beat up those people because they don't do that. And this is us. And it obscures the way that we view ourselves because at the end of the day, we look at this list and we feel good about ourselves. We're not like that person. And that's delusional. That's not true. It's like looking at yourself in one of those funhouse mirrors. It's a total distortion. And that's the first problem that we see with, with religion is the more religious hoops that we jump through, the more that we can convince ourselves into thinking that we are okay when we are not. That's the first problem. It obscures our self-assessment. 
Here's the second problem. Religion obscures your experience of grace. It obscures your experience with grace, of grace. After Simon the Pharisee looks down on this woman, Jesus uh, uh, tells him this story that we see in verse 41 and 42. And just to summarize it, it's, it's basically pretty simple. He says, okay, two guys owe this other guy money. One guy owes him this big amount. The other guy owes him this small amount. But the problem is, Neither one of them has any money to pay him back. So the money lender is very gracious and kind and just cancels the debt of both of them. And then Jesus asks, okay, which one of them will love him more? And this is Jesus' whole point. He's saying there is a correlation tied to how much you see yourself as being forgiven. That's tied to your joy. Once you see that you've been forgiven a lot, that's going to mean that you have a great deal of joy. And so he's, he's looking at Simon and saying, look, I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to say that to you and offer it to you. But if I said to you, I forgive you, it would just bounce off of you like a rubber bullet. Simon, it just would not penetrate. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't settle in. And here's what we have to do is that we honestly at this point have to explore our own hearts here. Because there are some of you, I know, who say and believe I believe that Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. And when you hear that and when you say that, it, it literally has, has no reaction in your heart whatsoever. It's sort of like it just sort of bounces off and doesn't move you to joy at all. It just, it just sort of bounces off. And, and Jesus has an explanation for, for that phenomenon. And it's this. It's because you think in that moment, Jesus has kind of come along and paid off like a $5 tab of yours. And so when he says, I forgive you, it's kind of like, okay, so what? I mean, that's boring. I've heard that before. Can we move on to something else? You know, it, it literally, your heart has no response. It's just like lifeless and cold. And Jesus says that's because you, you, your religion has, has diluted your, your self-assessment, and therefore now it's diluting your experience of his grace to you. It'd be like this. Let's say one of your friends is a huge Avett Brothers fan. And because... You're the coolest friend in the world. You save up all of this money to throw him like the most killer surprise party ever. And you have the Avett brothers come and perform in his house at a house party. <laughs> so you have all of his friends over and you have the Avett brothers perform this house show. And they, you know, he's going to experience the show. And then afterward, they're just going to kick it all night together. And so you, know, you go out to dinner with your friend. He doesn't know this is coming. You've set this whole thing up. They're back at his house. I mean, Scott and Seth are chilling on his couch <laughs> as you have dinner with him. And you're walking back to his house, getting ready to open the door. And you turn and you say, okay, dude. I didn't tell you about this, but you're never going to believe what I did for your birthday, man. Just wait, okay? And so you open up the door, and the band that he professes to love is chilling right there on his couch. All of his friends are right there, and you turn back to him, and he's texting. <laughs> and you wonder, dude, I'm confused. I, I thought you liked them. You know, do you feel how odd and disjointed that is? But, but, that, but that's sort of the thing. I mean, for some of us who, who say, I love Jesus. He is my Savior. I want to worship him. And then when you hear the good news that he has forgiven you, it just sort of bounces off. If you don't see yourself as, as having an ongoing day-to-day need for forgiveness, then when you hear that, that's the effect that's going to have on you. 
Religion obscures your experience of grace. You can also hear this come out all the time in the way that Christians tell their testimonies. You know what I mean by that? Our, our, our conversion stories, how, how we became Christians. Because it comes out like this. Well, I was really bad at one point, and then Jesus saved me, and uh, now I'm trying really hard uh, to be really good. He, he forgave me, but now, as far as a moment-by-moment moment need for his forgiveness now, I, I don't really need it as much as I did back then, because look, that's why I'm doing all this good like religious stuff, right? And if you think that way, if you feel like I don't need Jesus' forgiveness every single moment of my life, then when you hear it, of course it's just going to bounce off and you'll be like, yeah, I've heard all that before. And it's not going to move you. And you're going to have no experience of his grace. Because that's what religion does. It obscures that. That's the second problem. Here's the third. Religion obscures your connection to Jesus. It obscures your self-awareness. It obscures your experience of his grace. And it obscures your connection to him. So he tells the story about two guys who owe these different amount of money, right? And then look at this last concluding question of that whole deal in verse 42. Which of the two will love him more? Which of the two will love the money lender more? I mean, that is his point. Who is the one that is really connecting to Jesus here? Who is the one that actually loves him? And so in verse 44, if you look at it, Jesus turns towards the woman, even though he's addressing Simon, and he kind of goes off. And he says, look at the way that she loves me. I came into your house, and, and you didn't... Uh, wash off my feet, Simon, which would have been sort of a customary way to be hospitable to a guest. He says, you didn't do that, but look, she's done that with her tears. And then he says, uh, you, didn't give me, uh, you didn't greet me with a kiss, which would have been a cultural way of just sort of greeting somebody. He says, you didn't do this, but look, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, which would have been sort of the way to treat an honored guest at that time. He says, you didn't do this, but she has been anointing my feet with, with perfume. I mean, of these two behavioral patterns here, you obviously don't love me. I mean, you, you, you are treating me actually rudely. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even getting the decency of like a, a normal house guest. But she is over the top, one-upping you in the way that she is loving me. And the question is, why? Why is she connecting with Jesus and you are not? And, that's the, and, 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 here's the, and here's the answer. It's because she knows her sin. She knows that it is large, and she knows the, the largeness and the extremity with which Jesus has forgiven her. And when those two things connect, that is what is making her heart explode in worship. This is, what, that's, this is his whole point. He's saying, she adores me, she loves me, because I have forgiven her this enormous amount. This is the whole point of Jesus' little story here. Look at verse 47. He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, just a side note here, because I know in verse 47, it can seem like he's saying, uh, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. This is the reason why I've forgiven her is because, look, she loves me so much. Her love for me is the reason why I'm forgiving her. And that's not what Jesus is saying. That word for doesn't point to the reason. It, it'd be better translated if, if he said, for look. Like, uh, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For look, she loved much. I mean, this is the whole point. The rest of the passage makes zero sense if you take it that, that her love for Jesus is the reason behind him forgiving her. Here's what this means. 
when she sees the immensity with which she has been forgiven, her love for Jesus is the result. That is the byproduct. It is the fruit. Her heart is exploding in worship. Now she is finally connecting to Jesus. He has not. I mean, this is his whole point. He who has been forgiven little loves Jesus little. He who has been forgiven much loves Jesus much. To the degree that you see your sin and the forgiveness of it because of what Jesus has done, to that degree, you will love Jesus. That is the way that you connect. And some of you are here tonight wanting to connect with him, wanting to connect with Jesus. And you're at that same point where you are feeling burnt out and guilty and full of fear and you don't know what to do. And so what you do is you do this. You say, okay, I need to do something. So I'm going to make a New Year's resolution or I'm going to commit to going to RUF Bible study every single week. I'm going to commit to going to church at least twice a month. I'm going to commit to reading my Bible X number of times a day. And not that there's anything wrong with that. There's no problem with that. But do you see what you're doing? You're just establishing another religious regiment and saying this is going to be the way to fix it. And that's like looking at a broken engine in a car and saying if I just pour enough gasoline in this thing, it's going to get this thing running again. It's not the way. Jesus is clearly looking and saying religion is not the way. We've already looked at the three problems of it. But that, of course, leaves us now with this final question is, okay, how do we do this? How do we connect to God? How do we connect to Jesus in this sort of way? And having a live, vibrant, ongoing, real connection. Here's the way forward. And what I want you to see is that we need two things. First, we need to have our hearts exposed. That's the first thing. We need to have our hearts exposed. Here's what Jesus is doing when he looks at Simon the Pharisee. He says, look, your goodness is just a way that you are using to avoid me as your savior. You are avoiding me as your savior by standing on your goodness, your obedience, your moral rectitude, everything that is good about you is just a way to avoid me as your savior. Because what Simon is basically doing is saying, God, look at how good I am. Now you owe me. You owe me the blessing. You owe me the forgiveness. You owe me salvation. You owe me whatever, because look at how good I am. And what Jesus is wanting to do is expose that whole way of thinking. Because when you see that this is what you are doing, that your very goodness is a way to Keep control of your life and avoid God as your savior. When you see that, when that is exposed, now you can repent in a much deeper level. Here's what I mean. Jesus wants us to not just repent of the bad things that we do, but of the reasons behind the good things that we do. Jesus wants us to repent, not just of the bad things that we do, but also because of the reasons behind the good things that we do. If that doesn't make any sense, let let me explain what I mean by that. When I was in college, you know, going back to my sophomore year, what I would do is, you know, I'd find myself in a situation where I would have screwed up or I would have messed up. I failed God in some way. There was, you know, a decision on the table and I went with the obvious one that I knew was wrong. I just didn't care. I just did it anyway. And so then I'd be left with all of this guilt and, and remorse and regret about it. And then what I would do with all of that guilt in that moment was beat myself up. 
and say, if I can just feel bad, uh, bad about this long enough, then it'll be okay. And then what I would do after I sort of beat myself up over my guilt is I uh, committed myself to, okay, I'm going to pray for an hour straight and I'm going to start reading the Bible again much more intensely. And, and, and what I would do in those moments, you see exactly what I'm doing, is I'm saying, I will atone for my sin myself. And the way that I chose to do it was through uh, beating myself up and through religious activity. You see exactly what I'm doing. I'm saying if I can just put in enough overtime hours of prayer and of Bible study, that'll be good enough maybe to pay off my sin on my own. And what I was doing, I was not coming to God and saying, look, I can't fix this. You have to. I was basically saying in my heart, look, I've got this. Just give me enough time to beat myself up, enough time to do enough Bible study, enough time to do enough prayer, and, and we'll be good. And the thing is, is that nobody would have known that that's what would have, that would have been happening. Everybody looking on the outside would have said, dude, he's reading the Bible and he's praying. He's a very spiritual person. But what I was really doing was using religious activity as a way to be my own savior. You see what I'm saying? I don't need Jesus as long as I can do all the stuff. And that's exactly what is going on here. When you can see that even underneath your goodness is just self-salvation strategies until you see that you will never be able to repent at this level. And you will always divide the world into people who do really good things and really bad things instead of seeing them all as basically the same. Underneath it all, underneath all of my goodness, underneath all of my badness is this sinful impulse to avoid God and to be in control of my life. When you can repent at that level, that's, when you finally see how much you really need Jesus. Later on in my you know, college life, I, I finally heard gospel teaching, and God began to expose that to me and to reveal to me that, okay, even all of the good things that I'm doing, it's really just a way for me to stay in control of my life and to avoid Jesus as my Savior and essentially to be my own Savior. And at that moment, all of the you know, crutches were kicked out from under me and I had nowhere else to turn but to him. And then here's the second thing that I want you to see because the whole point of this is not just for Jesus to kick out your crutches, to leave you exposed, to leave you feeling miserable and to say, okay, booyah, take care of it yourself. He doesn't just want our hearts exposed. He wants to have our hearts melted as well. And that's the second thing. Because when you are in that place of seeing how sinful you really are, you have nowhere else to look but to his grace and to his mercy. And the good news is, is that he will receive you in that place, in that position, with all of your stuff exposed, with all of your religiosity just seen through for what it really is. The good news is that he actually still receives you. You know, we looked at this last week, but when Jesus says that the moneylender forgives the, the million-dollar debt, we'll just say, it's not like the moneylender just sort of canceling the debt. What he is actually doing is absorbing a million-dollar hit into his bank account, right? And that's what he is doing. It, it, so forgiveness is unbelievably costly to the offended, and it is unbelievably free to the offender, and that's the good news. And so at this point, when, when this woman hears Jesus say, I forgive you, Jesus is not just throwing around religious lingo. He's pointing forward to the cross where he himself is going to absorb that hit. He's going to absorb that debt 
so that he can look at her and say, I forgive you, even your wickedness, even all of your religiousness. I know it's all just a way to avoid me, but I will forgive you when you come to me. And now look at her. Do we see her slavishly, dutifully obeying and serving Jesus because she has to? I mean, no, her heart is exploding. She wants to. She is, in, she is worshiping Jesus with all of her heart. She is the picture of a Christian, one who weeps over her sin but knows the extent of his forgiveness. And so the invitation of this whole thing is really just to come to Jesus. And I know for some of you, when you hear me say that, you're interpreting me saying, okay, well, now I've got to start cleaning up my act and going to RUF and start being religiously good. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying to start being honest, to being honest about who you are and what you do and to come to Jesus with the faith and the trust that he will receive you because he will. He will not shame you. He will not mock you. He will receive you graciously. We have a great need for a savior and we have a great savior for our need. Uh, Pray that you would Uh, hear that. So pray with me. Father, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see our sin and give us faith to see our Savior who has forever dealt with it. Help us to avoid the masquerade of our religion, but to trust in Jesus alone. And uh, I pray that the good news of your forgiveness would sink deep into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.